Okay, Psalm 6. Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger or discipline me in your wrath. Have mercy on me, Lord, for I am faint. Heal me, Lord, for my bones are in agony. My soul is in deep anguish. How long, Lord, how long? Turn, Lord, and deliver me. Save me because of your unfailing love. Among the dead, no one proclaims your name. Who praises you from his grave? I am worn out from my groaning. All night long I flood my bed with weeping and drench my couch with tears. My eyes grow weak with sorrow. They fail because of all my foes. Away from me, all you who do evil, for the Lord has heard my weeping. The Lord has heard my cry for mercy. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies will be overwhelmed with shame and anguish. They will turn back and suddenly be put to shame. Rob, help us understand what that's all about, please. Now, last week, we had a psalm that was known as an imprecatory psalm, Psalm 5. You may remember that if you were here. An imprecatory psalm is a psalm about... God's wrath and God's anger. And the psalmist is calling God's judgment down on his enemies. You probably will remember that. If you write that down, kids, you'll get a point and a reward, I'm sure. I want to know what Nick's going to give as a reward. I'm going to make sure it's reasonable. But this morning's psalm is not an imprecatory psalm, although at the very end of the psalm he does talk a little bit about his enemies and tries to shoo them away. But this is another kind of psalm altogether. This one is called a penitential psalm. And a penitential psalm is a psalm that is about repentance. It's about tears. It's a psalm that is written when somebody is in, 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 in despair and are crying out to God to either forgive them or to bring them abundance. And there are seven of these psalms in the in the, in the book of Psalms, six of them written by David. This is the first one. And then if you look at Psalm 22, Psalm 38, and the very well-known Psalm 51, where David is crying out to God for forgiveness after that terrible uh, act with, with Bathsheba. And then Psalm 130, 141. And then there's another one, Psalm 102. We're not quite sure who wrote that one, but it's another one of these penitential psalms. So here we have another psalm of David then. But in this case, we don't quite know where David is and what, is, what he's doing. Psalm 3, 4, and 5, you'll remember we knew, we were pretty certain that David was in exile. He was fleeing from his son Absalom, who had mounted a coup against his, his reign. And he's hiding somewhere in a cave. But we don't quite know what the situation is with David on this occasion. But he's, he's feeling troubled, that's for sure. We may get some clues from the psalm. And then maybe just one other little note. You see at the beginning of the psalm, it says, For the director of music with stringed instruments according to Sheminith. Now, these notes at the beginning of the psalms were probably added after David's time. They're not necessarily part of the inspired script, but they do tell us something. They tell us that, as I mentioned last week, that psalms are ideally not so much poems as they are lyrics for songs. They're there to be sung. And uh, we're not quite sure 100% what Sheminith means, but it means eight or eighth. 
So maybe it was the number of the tune that folk were supposed to use, or maybe it had to do with the lower octave. Maybe it's a, a song that we sung with a male voice, or maybe it's got something to do with the number of strings on the guitar that was going to be played. We're not quite sure. But can you imagine us singing lyrics like this today? Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger or discipline me in your wrath. Have mercy on me, Lord, for I am faint. My bones are in agony. My soul is in deep anguish. How Lord, how long, Lord, how long? Any volunteers to put some music to those words? But maybe, maybe this psalm tells us something about worship. Does worship always have to be about love and light and, and joy and hope? Or can we worship equally by allowing God into the depths of our pain and into our hearts? Are we worshiping God any less when we share with him our sadness as when we share with him our joy and our enthusiasm? Worship, it seems, is a multi-layered, a multi-colored tapestry, if you like, that has within it the lovely yellows and reds of joy and and praise, but maybe as well the deep darks and grays and browns of of pain and disappointment. So let's get into the psalm. And I'd invite you to keep the psalm open in front of you in your own Bible or the the pew Bible in front of you. What was that number again? You remember? 541. Five, okay, gotcha. Somewhere around about there. I'm going to call the first three verses the pain of discipline. Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger or discipline me in your wrath. Have mercy on me, Lord, for I am faint. My bones are in agony. My soul is in deep anguish. How long, Lord? How long? Now, I don't want anybody here this morning who is suffering pain and anguish. There are those, and we've all been through that to some degree. I don't want you immediately to begin to say, well, this must be then because I'm being disciplined. That's not what we're saying here this morning at all. This is what David might suspect. He may suspect that the reason he's going through this physical and emotional trauma is God is trying to teach him something, and it's rather painful. That's what David suspects. But there, from my own studies, I've, I reckon there are 10 or 12 different reasons why God brings uh, suffering upon us, why he gives us pain and why he gives us agony. And it's not necessarily that he is disciplining one. But let's see what the psalm says. You'll notice in those first few lines the, the wonderful use of, of, of Hebrew poetry, of, hu- of, of Hebrew parallelism. Most of the, the poets who wrote in those days weren't like our modern-day poets where a lot of things have to maybe rhyme or use a certain rhythm. They, they were very hot on this parallelism bit. So you can see it in those first couple of verses. Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger. Discipline me in your wrath. You hear the, hear the rhythm, hear, the, hear the, 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 the parallelism. You see it in the next verse. My bones are in agony. My soul is in anguish. Classic examples of that that kind of way of writing the poetry in those days. So is David ill then? Is he sick? Is he suffering from some kind of physical or emotional distress? His bones, his body, and his soul, his mind, his spirit, seem to be in severe pain and anguish. It would seem that it's, it's both of those. It would seem that it is, as it often is with us, when we're going through deep emotional trauma, the body begins to hurt as well, and vice versa. 
But what's, what's causing this? Why is David so ill? Is it simply because he's gotten towards the end of his life and he's begun to pick up some of those things that one picks up in older age and he's beginning to feel his age? Is he an old man? Maybe part of it, we're not sure. Or is it being caused maybe by his exile? Is it, is it indeed a time when David is in exile as we've been seen in the previous Psalms? Maybe. Or is it something more than this? Does this illness and this resultant anguish take us back many years in David's life? Something that David would much rather be forgetting. We go back into David's personal history. We read in 2 Samuel in chapter 11 of that terrible sin with Bathsheba. Bathsheba, who was the beautiful wife of his number one general, Uriah. And David notices her one day and he falls in love with her or lust or whatever you want to call it and he immediately determines to get her as his wife even though she is married to someone else. And he compounds that sin by sending Uriah into the front of the battle to make sure he gets killed. And that happens. And we read in the next chapter how David is visited by the prophet Nathan, this courageous and forthright prophet who accuses him to his face pulls no punches and says, David, you're the man. You remember the little parable he uses about the the wealthy farmer with all the sheep and the poor farmer with only one sheep. And when he wants to create a dinner for his friends, he goes and grabs the poor farmer's one sheep and sacrifices it. Nathan says, you're that man. And David's immediate response is to say, I have sinned against the Lord. He immediately knows his guilt and he repents. End of story. Not end of story. Because Nathan says to him, and you'll see it here in, in, um, in 1 Samuel chapter 12, he says to him, the sword, David, will never depart from your house. The sword will never depart from your house. In other words, David, you've repented of your sin, but you're going to suffer. Things are going to happen. Unpleasant things are going to happen in your household from now on. And God later says to David as well, God speaking says, Behold, I will raise up evil against you from your own household. And this is all after David has already repented. And we see in David's life a number of steps where this actually comes true. I've I've counted about eight or nine of these steps. One of the early ones is, is, for example, the death of Bathsheba's child. The first child she tries to bear with David is, 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 dies very shortly after birth. Absalom, his favorite son, is a bit of a party boy. And he begins to sleep with several of his father's wives. Almost as if he's saying to his own father, I'm going to rub your infidelity in your own face. And then one of David's sons rapes one of his own half-sisters. Amnon rapes one of the sisters of Absalom. The sword is not departing from David's house. Absalom and Amnon begin to hate one another, which results eventually in Absalom killing his his brother Amnon. And this, this goes on and on. And then the son falls out of love with his father and rebels against him. And even more than that, he goes and he executes this coup against him to try to take over the kingdom. In the end, Absalom himself is killed in battle 
by one of David's right-hand men. So the sword has never left his house, even though he's repented. And it would seem that even though David has genuinely repented, his troubles are not yet over. And, and this has troubled me for some time. But I believe there may be an important principle here that we sometimes overlook. Confession and the forgiveness of sin does not always mean that we no longer face the consequences of that sin in this life. I've met many people who have come to Christ out of a life of addiction to alcohol or to drugs. And they repent and they come to Christ and their lives are changed. But their bodies are never the same. Their bodies continue to bear the scars of that prior addiction. Repentance, genuine repentance and forgiveness does not necessarily remove in this life some of the harvest of that sin. David had sown and now he is reaping the consequences. Forgiven he was, but the results of that sin are to follow him. And I believe that's what uh, Paul is saying to us in Galatians 6 when he says we're not to be deceived. God is not mocked. What we sow, we will reap. But we thank God for this. You know, when, when God deals with his children, what I've noticed from the scriptures is that he usually rebukes first and then he chastens. It's like we do with young children, or I guess we used to do. I'm not sure we do it anymore. But you warn them before you discipline them. You see this in Hebrews 12, Proverbs uh, 3. And according to this passage, these passages, and Hebrews 12 quotes Proverbs chapter 3, God is chastening, but he's not punishing, he's disciplining. And David uses the word discipline, you'll notice. And it's the discipline given by a loving father to help the, his child mature. I'm studying the book of Proverbs right at the moment, and it's fascinating. Fathers, please take some time. Fathers particularly, and mothers. Uh, mothers as well, definitely. Read through some of those early chapters of Proverbs, especially if you're bringing up young children. Begin to understand some of what, they, what, what the, psalmist, uh, the Proverbs writer, probably Solomon, is saying about how to advise, how to teach a young child the, the important things of life. Sometimes God chastens us in order to deal with our disobedience, sometimes. At other times, he chastens us to prepare us for, for greater things. Sometimes it's like the tough and strenuous training that an athlete or a military person has to go through before they can be put into battle or into, into competition. It feels like you're being punished. I had the fortune or misfortune of being a soldier in the South African military, and we had our... We had conscription in those days, and we had our basic training, and it was as rough as they say it is, probably rougher. Those first six or eight weeks feel like you're being punished. They tell you they're not punishing you, but boy, does it feel like it. You feel as if you could hardly move. You, at the end of every day, you're so sore, and you're, it's just awful. But out of it, a young man becomes a soldier, and sometimes our preparation for God's service can be a little painful. It feels a bit like discipline. So David is imagining that God is angry with him because of whatever it is, particularly maybe the sin we've talked about. But he may be wrong. God may be uh, chastising or rebuking David, or he may be teaching him things for a totally different, different reason. But he does feel... I get the impression he feels in this psalm like he's, he's walking around with a target on his back. 
You know, he's really uh, feeling as if he's being targeted. So, is David correct then that his present state is God chastising him? Well, if it is, then he needs to know what God is really saying to him. And I leave this with you. God says to us, and he said to me on occasion, I will discipline you until you learn the lesson I want you to learn and you are fully equipped for the work I want you to do. Hebrews 12 emphasizes that. When we feel that God is indeed disciplining us, we have several options. We can despise that discipline. We can resist it. We can collapse under its weight. Or we can accept it and submit to his touch. And that's what God wants, our submission. And it would probably be true to say that nobody particularly likes to be disciplined or particularly likes to be rebuked. We all shy away from it. But I think there's a very important truth here. And I share with, I'm going to say this quite slowly because this is what has come to me from this psalm, particularly this morning. The single distinguishing mark of those who go on towards the greatest spiritual maturity is how they respond to God's correction. I'll say that again. The single distinguishing mark of those who go on towards the greatest spiritual maturity is how they respond to God's correction. And the common denominator of those who remain spiritually stagnant is their insensitivity to God's discipline. It's impossible to grow spiritually without this sense of humility. We need to listen to the Lord even when it hurts. We need to respond to whatever he says even when it's hard. The fact that he's still speaking to us at all is confirmation of his great and wonderful love for us. And the rewards of listening and obeying God are beyond all measure. Remember how we used to sing, trust and obey. There's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. So what about you and me? When we're in anguish, like David, feeling as if the world has has come down on us, and, and the anguish is physical and emotional and even spiritual, and we, we cry out, how much longer do I have to put up with this? I wish I had the answers for you. And I wish I could tell you how long it's going to be, but I don't. I'm pretty sure I have the answer to my own ongoing physical pain from time to time. I think I know why that is occurring. But I don't know that for anybody else. We need to constantly look into God's word and find that. Maybe there are questions that we do need to ask. Questions like, is there any unconfessed sin that I'm stubbornly hanging on to? Maybe. Am I possibly paying the price, paying the price for sins that I committed in the past? And my body is a constant painful reminder of that misspent earlier life. Or is God disciplining me possibly for greater service? Or is our pain given to us so that we can demonstrate Christian graciousness in a whining and a a whinging world? I wish I could give you the answer. I wish even more that it would not be long at all before God takes it from you. But we have to leave it in God's hands. David does. He does know best. And most of all, never, never forget, he loves 
He loves us with a love that is way beyond our comprehension. The pain of discipline. As we move on into the next two verses, I'm going to call this simply a brief section called the futility of death. Verses 4 and 5. Let's see what David is saying here. It sounds a little odd when you first read it. Turn, O Lord, and deliver me. Save me because of your unfailing love. Among the dead, no one proclaims your name. Who praises you from the grave? You see what David's trying to say here? It sounds a little bit cheeky almost. My translation would be something like this. Lord, you'd better bless me now so I can give you praise. Because when I'm dead, I won't be able to praise you anymore. That's what it sounds like to me. And one of the reasons was that, as we've probably said before, in the Old Testament times, before Christ and before the writings of the apostles, it does appear that those, those folk didn't have as full an understanding of the afterlife as we do. They very often just refer to the grave. David, though, strangely enough, is one of those who does seem to have a few more insights than some of the others. So, for example, we see in, in, in Psalm chapter 16, David says this about the so-called afterlife. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body will also rest secure because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let me, nor will you let your faithful ones see decay. You make known to me the path of life. You fill me with joy in your presence and eternal pleasures at your right hand. So it does appear as if David's been given some kind of insight. But throughout the Old Testament, we find folk without that insight. The, the, the grave is kind of a, like the end of it all, roughly. And you, you live on through your ancestors. But he says, a body in the grave cannot praise God. So save me from the grave that I continue to praise you. And those of us approaching or even well over our assigned three score years and ten, what has God still got for us to do? David wants to keep praising. He just wants to keep praising. His real desire is not to die because he wants to keep praising and he's concerned he won't be able to praise when he's dead. He's certainly got his priorities in the right place. David asks how long he must still suffer, but at the same time he does not want God to end his life. He just wants God to end his suffering. Let's just for a moment, just for a brief moment, just pause and, and be grateful for the fact that we do know now what waits us after this life. What happens to us after death. It's not the time to go into a full exposition of the, the doctrine of eternal life. But Paul, writing to Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 1, says, Christ has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. In other words, through the gospel, Christ has shown us what it all looks like, what it's going to feel like. And boy, I tell you, this life is full of good things, but the next one is so full. When you read in the passages of the New Testament, particularly in the book of Revelation and others, you realize that although this life is abundant and we have so much, boy, it's going to be a lot, lot more in the next life. And we praise God for that. And David is not quite aware of that. He's not quite sure what's going to happen after death. So he says, Lord, I don't want to die now because I still want to praise you. 
Death for him is, is a bit of a futile thing. But let's move on. Verses 6 and 7. Calling these, three, these two verses the strain of despair. This is the most emotional part of the psalm so far. In fact, it's the most emotional psalm from Psalm 1. Now, we're getting, to, we're getting deep into David's heart here. What does he say? Verse 6. I'm worn out from my groaning. All night long I flood my bed with weeping and drench my couch with tears. My eyes grow weak with sorrow. They fail because of all my foes. Once again, some lovely uh, parallelism. But you notice the other figure of speech that David is using here. It's called hyperbole. You know what hyperbole is. It's a deliberate attempt to exaggerate something to make a point. So can you see David using a bit of exaggeration here? All night long, I flood my bed with weeping and I drench my couch with tears. That's a heck of a lot of weeping. The next one's even even more so. David's eyes grow weak with sorrow and they fail because of all his foes. I guess that's what we call crying our eyes out. We use hyperbole, we use exaggeration to get a point across. But why all this weeping? Why all this crying? Why all these tears? Is it because of his enemies? What is it? David's having a sleepless night. You ever had a sleepless night? David's having one of those. But it's not just a sleepless night, it's a sleepless night of anguish. Back in the earlier Psalms, we find David having a peaceful sleep at night. In fact, at the end of Psalm 4, I think it is, he says, now I can lay myself down and I can have a wonderful night's sleep. Not anymore. Something's happening. And David's weakened condition is shown in his eyes. I know that the saying goes that the eyes are the windows to our soul, and I don't know what that means exactly, but I do know that experienced physicians and even veterinarians can look into the eye and say there's something wrong here, something wrong. It's almost as if, in verse 6 and 7, that David has stopped praying. He's too exhausted by all of this misery even to pray. And it's very easy to throw at somebody the cliche which says, you know, why worry when you can pray? For David right now, it's why pray when you can worry? He's in anguish. It seems to have been, prayer seems to have gone for a moment. He seems to be crushed by this emotion. But he does know if anything's going to save him, if anything at all is going to save him, it's nothing that he has within his own emotional armory. He doesn't have the means to save himself. This is the extremity that God is now going to address. Strangely enough, and many, many years ago, I took some comfort from a, a Christian man, a very mature Christian man who was somewhat of a, a mentor to me many, many years ago. And I'll never forget what he said. He said, I hear Christians say that their pain and suffering brought them closer to God. But I have to admit that was not always the case with me. And I, I took some comfort that even this saintly man felt that at some times he didn't have that experience of that pain and agony bringing him closer to God. But as the years have gone, gone by, and as I've spoken to many more Christians and from my own experience, 
I would say this. Pain and suffering usually make us either better or bitter. And the difference between the two seems to be something around the faith and trust we have in God's faithfulness. When I haven't trusted, I've been bitter. And when I've had the courage and trust in God to see my pain and suffering for what it is, then I've genuinely felt better. And when I'm bitter, I find myself asking the question, when will I get out of this? But when I can accept by faith and trust that God has allowed this to happen to me, the question changes from when will I get out of this to what can I get out of this? David's about to get to that spot. So let's look at the last couple of verses of the psalm. Verses 8 to 10. We've looked at the the pain of discipline and the futility of death and the strain of the despair upon him. Finally, we see this joy of deliverance. Look at the joy in these words. Away from me, all you who do evil. The Lord has heard my weeping. The Lord has heard my cry for mercy. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies will be overwhelmed with shame and anguish. They will turn back and suddenly be put to shame. Something dramatic has happened between verse 7 and verse 8. Something quite dramatic. It's possible that David stopped writing at verse 7. He just had enough. And he comes back to it maybe the next morning when something has happened and he feels a lot, lot better. God has delivered him and he starts writing verse 8. Maybe it's much more immediate than that. We don't know. But if we could look into David's eyes now, we'd see something totally different. The tears are gone. The anguish is gone. And we see in his eyes the light of faith and joy and happiness. Something's happened. He feels healing in his body and and peace in his heart. The anguish is gone. Perhaps word has come to him that his enemies have been defeated. We don't know. But this is certain. David says, God has accepted my prayers and answered my prayers. He seems to address his enemies in verse 8 and say to them, Away from me, all you who do evil. The Lord has heard my weeping. We don't know whether they ever got that message or not, but it does appear that David is in a totally different place. He gives all the credit and all the glory to God for this. And I guess what we learn most from this psalm is that we have here what I would call an experience fairly common to most believers. David has given us something in this psalm that we can call our own. That first there's the desperation, and then there's the deliverance. First there's the chaos and the confusion, and then there's the confidence. I'm sure we've all had that experience. And it's no coincidence. It's not just that it happened to David and to other people in the Scriptures, but you see it in Christ himself. Psalm 6 is one of those psalms that Jesus himself quotes from. In John chapter 12, he's getting very close to the end of his life. He quotes from the beginning of the psalm. And he says, my heart is troubled. Quoting directly from Psalm 6. And another stage, Matthew records Christ saying, away from me all you who do evil. 
So even in the life of Christ, you have this same experience of desperation, of, of anguish. But that's not the end, because there's resurrection and there's so much more that comes after it. And I, I believe that if we are to, as Paul says in the Philippian letter, to, to know the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, if we're to know that, then we're bound to find ourselves in some measure, at some time, following the path of the rejected king of kings, following the path of his direct ancestor, David. But it also implies that we can rediscover our confidence in God's promises. I want to close by just saying a word or two about the believer's confidence. We know that God's plan for us is inviolable, and it's sure. God's plan for us is incredibly comforting. It is the ultimate source of our confidence as believers. There's nothing accidental about our salvation and about the way God is working in our lives. We are his because from eternity he claimed us for himself. And this means you and I stand on very, very solid ground this morning. We no longer have to live in fear and doubt, anxiously worrying if we're indeed walking in his will. And our pastor emphasized this over and over as he took us through the book of Galatians. We don't need to stress every time we have a little setback, worrying whether our salvation is falling away from us. No, 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 no. We can relax back in the fact that God has this plan for our lives. And that plan is sure. And that makes the difference between our insecurity and godly confidence. Think about it this way. God promised Abraham as many descendants as were the stars in the sky. And and he delivered. And it's the same God who promises us life with real meaning. He promised to David an eternal kingdom. And God delivers because we now have a stake in that eternal kingdom. The same God who promised to raise Jesus from the dead and again delivered, promised to raise us from the dead. His track record is impeccable. His sovereignty has never let us down. And we can be assured it never will. So if you are living this morning what I might call a a fairly nervous spiritual life, relax. God's faithfulness applies here. God's plan for the ages is yours. You are in the center of that plan. Rest, relax in it. I'd like to just read something in, in closing, as it were. I doing some research for this particular psalm, I came across something that I'd written some time ago, and I don't quite know why I'd written it. Um, You ever had that? You write things down, you don't know why? Well, there it was. I can actually read my own handwriting, because I'm much quicker at writing than at typing anything, that's for sure. And it actually was a little bit of a reflection on 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 6, where Paul writes this, If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which produces in you patient endurance of the same sufferings that we suffer. Let me read just one or two bits from this. Perhaps you haven't come face to face with the fact of suffering yet. A lot of Christians haven't. 
And they assume that if all is well in their relationship with the Lord, all will then be well in their circumstances. But a quick survey of the life of Jesus and Peter and Paul and James and John and Stephen and practically any other follower of the Lord will convince us of one thing. Pain is a part of discipleship. After all, Jesus told his disciples to count the cost. That means there must be one. So the question for us as believers is this. What is this cost going to be, and what is it going to do to us? For some, it seems to destroy their faith, pointing them only to a God who doesn't seem to care. For others, it's a mystery that should never be probed and can never be understood or explained, a rather stoical attitude. Yet the biblical testimony about our trials is this. Sometimes God delivers us miraculously. Sometimes he doesn't. But he always comforts us with his promises and his presence. Regardless, trials always bear fruit in our lives. And sometimes they can produce an eternal perspective. Sometimes they can build enduring character and a stronger faith. Sometimes if we let them, they can bring us closer to God. So what? Well, maybe it is a mystery why some people let trials move them away from God and others let trials move them closer to God. The biblical ideal, however, is this, that trials should always result in patient endurance. Trials are clear evidence that our world is still fallen and our race is still sinful. Even though the kingdom has been promised, and some would say it's even begun to sprout up here and there. There is an already, and there is a, non, a not yet in the gospel of redemption. An already and a not yet. And we live between the already and the not yet. And God is at work in our hearts. Here's the key. Here's the key. Let God do his work in my heart, in your heart. Trials aren't fun. Everyone knows that especially God, but they can be useful. They produce perseverance. And as James says, perseverance has a perfect result, our maturity. And while we are persevering, we can always know this. God is there, he cares, and his comfort is always available. We don't sing a lot of the older hymns that much anymore, and I'm a little bit sad about that, I'll be honest with you. And I came across a hymn that I can remember singing in my days at university, in college in America. I didn't sing it very often because it's, it's kind of very vague in my memory. It's a song written over 250 years ago by one Thomas Hastings. You may or may not remember it. And it's called Come ye disconsolate. And I'm just going to read these three verses very quickly. Come, ye disconsolate, wherever you languish. Come to the mercy seat. Fervently kneel. Here bring your wounded hearts. Here tell your anguish. Earth has no sorrow that heaven can't heal. Joy of the desolate, 
light of the strain, hope of the penitent, fadeless and pure. Here speaks the comforter, tenderly saying, earth has no sorrow that heaven can't cure. Final verse. Here see the bread of life. Here see waters flowing, forth from the throne of God, pure from above. Come to the feast of love. Come ever knowing, earth has no sorrow that heaven can't remove. Earth has no sorrow that heaven can't remove. Heavenly Father, we entrust into your wonderful hands, your comforting hands this morning, all those in our midst who have anguish this morning. We commit each one of them into your hands in a special way this morning. Lord, be that pain physical, emotional, spiritual, or a combination of all of those things. Lord, our prayer is for each one of such this morning that you would give them comfort. You may in your wisdom not give them immediate relief, but you you can and you will, according to your word, give them comfort. Dear Father, we pray that you would give special, special grace to those this morning who need it most, to those with pain and anguish. This we pray, knowing that you are hearing our prayers and answering our prayers. And this we pray in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen.